and I think about this all the time, if I have to spend the rest of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit, I need the world to know what happened and how it happened. Snow Files, Season 2, Episode 26, Rage Against the Crime Scene. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Bernard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. If you enjoy Snow Files, please give us a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help Jamie's story get out to the masses. Visit snowfiles.net and click on Rate Show. And while you're there, leave us a voicemail that may be used on the show and check out our cool Snow Files merch. In the last episode, we walked you through the crime scene from the perspective of the first officers on the scene. We discussed how the body was moved from its original position. Following that episode, Leslie performed an extensive analysis of that issue, resulting in the conclusion that Officer Williams, not the EMTs, moved the body but would not admit it all of these years until he finally admitted it around 10 years later at trial. In this episode, we pick up where we left off. After the EMTs left, the crime scene had been turned over to Sergeant Irvin. Randall McKinley from the Bloomington Police Department was the first to arrive, around 9.05 p.m. He was a crime scene technician, but still in training. The other crime scene technician that would process the scene was Ed Kalal from the Illinois State Police. 
While Kalal was en route to the scene, it was decided that McKinley would start by taking static lifts of footprints. McKinley started by taking static lifts of the concrete outside the door, the south side of the main entrance, as well as the green tile floor of all possibly affected areas to recover any footwear prints. He also took pictures of the footwear impressions. When crime scene technician Ed Kalal arrived at the scene at 921, he was met by McLean County Deputy Coroner Dixie Smith, Bloomington Police Chief Myron Miller, Assistant Police Chief Tim Linsky, Lieutenant Bill Emmett, Sergeant Gene Irvin, Sergeant Dennis O'Brien, Crime Scene Technician in Training Randall McKinley, as well as several uniformed officers. With this type of reception, you know this crime was a big deal in small town Bloomington, Illinois. By this time, the crime scene had been roped off and both Linden and Empire Streets were lined with people. Kalal was briefed on the situation by Sergeant Irvin, who stated that at approximately 8.20 p.m., the Bloomington Police Department received a call from the alarm company of an alarm at the Clark Station, and that Officer Williams, the first officer at the scene, found the victim lying on his left side on the floor behind the counter, and that Officer Williams cut open the victim's shirt and found two gunshot wounds to the chest. According to Kalal's report, Irvin stated that Williams began CPR on the victim until two EMT personnel arrived and pronounced the victim dead. But that statement is contradicted by Williams' interview. Well, it occurred to me that just because he looked dead didn't necessarily mean that he was. And I thought, well, I better make sure. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I should go ahead and start CPR. Um, and I rolled him over because before I started applying any kind of uh, chest stimulus. I wanted to make sure that he didn't have a knife or some other object stuck in his chest and then I just made it worse instead of better. Um, and so I took my pocket knife out and I just opened up his shirt. I cut his shirt open and uh, rolled it back off of his chest and then I saw that he had um, two bullet wounds and um, at that point I decided that I wasn't going to apply CPR because that might not have helped either depending on where that bullet was at. And at that point I did think he was going to be helped anyway. No, Williams did not administer CPR to the victim. And no, Williams was not the first officer on the scene. Hey y'all, my name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and I'm the host of Unjust and Unsolved. And I want to tell you about my new podcast, Murder in Alliance, a real-time investigation into a case that is so bonkers, it's hard to wrap your head around. Everyone in this town seems to have some kind of secret or interest in this victim, whether it be drugs, sex, or both. I'll be teaming up with Jason Baldwin from the West Memphis Three and his organization, Proclaim Justice, to reinvestigate this murder from the ground in Ohio. If he slit her throat right here, there would be more blood on that on that sofa. We track down witnesses. You guys have got to understand what's at risk for me here. And even uncover massive police corruption. There were two officers that felt like their brotherhood, their staff, that could have been involved. This is the case of David Thorne and the murder of Yvonne Lane. Find and follow Murder and Alliance wherever you get your podcasts. Kowal documented the following observations of the crime scene. The station consisted of a sales area, storage room, office, and employee's bathroom. There was another bathroom entered from the outside on the east side of the station. 
There were three islands containing two gas pumps on each island south of the station. The east plate glass window had been broken out on an earlier date and was covered with plywood. The entrance door was located in the center of the south wall. Inside the station was an L-shaped counter along the south wall with a cash register, credit card machine, and gas pump computer on the counter. The gas pump computer showed $21 and the cash register was open with the cash drawer missing. Above the counter was a rack containing packs of cigarettes. Just east of the counter was a shelf that contained cigarette lighters, candy, and miscellaneous items. A storage room located north of the counter contained several boxes of candy, cigarettes, and soda. A recessed cooler containing soda was located along the north wall of the station, and just east of the cooler was a sunglasses display rack with several other items hanging on the wall. Crime scene technician Kalal observed the victim lying on the floor behind the counter, partially in the doorway of the storage room. The victim was on his back, with his black undershirt and gray t-shirt cut away, exposing two small caliber gunshot wounds, one to the center upper abdominal area and one to the left shoulder. The victim was wearing a pair of blue jeans with a red belt, a pair of black and white high top tennis shoes and white socks. A small amount of blood was observed on the floor and on the bottom shelf of the counter. It's strange that Kalal did not mention anything about the stool being knocked over in his report. Nor did he mention anything about the body position change. You have to wonder if he even bothered to speak with Pilo or Williams. After McKinley photographed the lifts, he turned them over to Kalal to be delivered to the ISP photo lab in Springfield for development. And here it gets a little strange. The following is mentioned in McKinley's very, very brief two-paragraph crime scene report. Assisted crime scene technician Kalal in the remaining processing of the crime scene and was then sent to Six Points Road and Alexander Road to look at footwear impressions found in mud near a recovered stolen vehicle. It's noted it was unknown if the case was related to the crime. However, in Kalal's crime scene report, he states that they went to process a car together, but it wasn't until April 1st, the next day, at 1 p.m. in the afternoon. So were the two cars processed? Was McKinley talking about the same car the next day? But I digress. We'll get there. At 10.10 p.m., remember, we're still on March 31st, Kalal removed a black wallet from the victim's right back pocket. The wallet contained Bill's ID and one $20 bill. The wallet and its contents were given to Deputy Coroner Dixie Smith. At 10.36, the body was removed by the funeral home and transported to the McLean County Morgue. Kalal reports that a search of the outside area was then completed and there were two pennies observed on the east side of the dumpster, two pennies on the drive near the center set of gas pumps, and one penny on the drive at the southwest entrance to the station. At 12.10 a.m. on April 1st, Kalal received the cash register tape from Reggie Ragland, the territory manager for Clark Oil. Processing of the crime scene was completed at 2.50 a.m. on April 1st. The following items were collected. Exhibit 1. Sealed paper bag containing victim's black and white Nike high-top tennis shoes. Exhibit 2. Sealed box containing swab of floor near counter. Exhibit 3. Sealed box containing control swab of floor near counter. Exhibit 4. Eight Leighton lift cards with Leighton prints from the entrance door. Exhibit 11. Sealed paper bag containing cash register tape. 
What about the blood observed on the shelf? Join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snowfiles Patreon team for a flat rate of five bucks a month or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snowfiles wristband and a shout out by Jamie on the Snowfiles podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the Join Our Patreon button. Kalal and McKinley returned to the scene and took additional photographs at 8.20 a.m. the same day. And afterwards, he and several officers conducted a search for a two or three block area in all directions. But no additional evidence was found. Around 10 a.m., they headed for the morgue to attend the autopsy. The autopsy was performed by Dr. Joseph Sapala at 11.30 a.m. Sapala documented two gunshot wounds, one to the upper left anterior chest and one to the lower chest to the left of his sternum. There was no soot or stippling around either wound. One of the bullets went straight through both top chambers of his heart. Death was caused by hemorrhagic shock caused by two gunshot wounds to the left anterior chest. He bled to death inside of his chest cavities and heart sac. He also had five one-inch bruises on his right forearm and a one-inch subgaleal hematoma or a big knot on his forehead. Additional photographs were taken of the victim and the victim's wounds at that time. The following items were collected, packaged, and marked by Kalal. Exhibit 5. Sealed paper bag containing victim's blue jeans, red belt, white socks, and underwear. Exhibit 6. Sealed paper bag containing victim's black undershirt and gray t-shirt. Exhibit 7. Sealed envelope containing inked finger and palm prints of the victim. Exhibit 8. Sealed envelope containing head hair standard of the victim. Exhibit 9. Sealed container containing blood standard of the victim. Exhibit 10. Sealed box containing two bullets, 22 caliber, removed from the victim. Around 1 p.m., McKinley and Kalal arrived at Brown's Record Service, where McKinley processed a light gray and green 1983 Chevrolet Monte Carlo that had been stolen from the east side of Bloomington on March 31st and recovered on the west side of Bloomington on the same day. Kalal noted that the ignition switch and headlight switch were in the on position. McKinley and Kalal departed the record service at 2.10 p.m. on April 1st, 1991. On April 3rd, Exhibits 1-4 through 4 and 7-10 through 10 were receded to personnel of the Morton Forensic Science Laboratory at 10 a.m. And Exhibits 5, 6, and 11 were receded to records clerk Cindy Rousey at the Bloomington Police Department at 1.35 p.m. from Kalal. So there you have it, folks. The evidence collected at the crime scene, which according to Kalal's report, was of evidential value, was the victim's clothes and shoes, a blood swab and control swab from the floor, fingerprint lifts from the entrance door, the cash register tape, the victim's finger and palm prints, the victim's hair and blood, and the two bullets extracted from the victim's body. No cash register collected, no printing of the area around the counter, the cash register, or the alarm button, no pictures of the victim's clothes that we have found, and no blood from the shelf. Still, none of the items collected of evidential value have been tested and the state has resisted testing for years. Why not test the DNA?
organization and the the, the way they they worked it is just it's just unbelievable. Did they not collect the blood on the on the uh, on the shelf, or did they collect the blood on the shelf? And was the blood on the shelf what they tested in 2009? We don't know. And until we get a, a judge to allow us some discovery on this, and a judge who actually wants to, you know, know what's going on here, we may never know. But I, I know there are some answers to these questions. We just have to get someone that wants to, uh, to, to know what the answers are as much as we do. If you have questions or comments about this episode, please post on our social media. You can also contact us at snowfiles.net by leaving a voicemail or by filling out the online form. We record Q&A every other Sunday, so the sooner the better. And if you like the show, don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. We invite any witness featured on the Snowfiles podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. In this episode, we picked up where we left off from episode one and meticulously followed the tracks of the Illinois State Police CST and the Bloomington Police Department CST in training as they observed and gathered what they referred to as items of evidential value. In this early stage, we can already see the reports by the crime scene investigators contradict statements made by the first responding officers. We also learned that evidence observed by law enforcement was not collected. Why didn't they collect the cash register? Why didn't they collect the blood on the shelf? And why didn't they print the counter, cash register, and alarm button? This episode leaves us with more questions than answers. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There's a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. Police interviews, police observations, photographs, and evidence point to a struggle. Did Bill Little fight for his life? That's next time on Snowfall.